Well, good evening from my side this evening. Very special welcome to our service tonight, and um, particularly to those who are friends or family of Kaylee who've joined us for this occasion of her baptism. Special welcome to you as well. Um, but it is a great joy for us now, before we come to the baptism, to just come around the Lord's Word again this evening and to continue our series in Mark's Gospel. And so please would you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Um, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to read together, not the whole chapter, um, but from verse 1 through to verse 42. Uh, that is the next large section uh, that Mark deals with, and uh, we're going to read that together. So Mark chapter 14, reading from verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment or perfume of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, uh, furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And it was evening, and he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation." The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Just so far in God's word this evening. Now, I was, as I was preparing for this week's message in Mark's gospel, I was once again tempted, as I've mentioned a, a number of times in the series, to abandon our approach to working through Mark in large chunks uh, because there is so much depth to God's word uh, in these 42 verses which we could never explore in any meaningful detail tonight. Uh, this next section, starting in chapter 14, has become known as the Passion Narratives, uh, the historical account of the last few days leading up to the betrayal, uh, the trial, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And every portion of this Passion Narrative is loaded with great treasure treasures of spiritual teaching and, and personal application for those who would pause and meditate on each portion of God's word. As I was looking at the commentaries this week, most of the commentaries that I have on Mark's gospel divide these 42 verses into anything between two, uh, but most of them five and six different sermons in order to try and do justice to the significance of what Mark records for us in these verses. But as I forced myself to take the step back that we kind of said we would do at the beginning of this series to look at the bigger picture of what Mark is conveying in his selection of these events and also the sequence in which he presents them, uh, I think there is still great benefit for us to, to stick to our approach this evening of taking this section as a whole and to see the overall flow uh, of what Mark wants us to learn from the highs and the lows of Jesus as he enters into his final straight to Calvary. 
And so there will be opportunities again in future when we will come back to these verses and we will slow down and we will explore them in more detail. We, we do that often every year, particularly around Easter time. But for tonight, we are going to just skim over many of the details in order to try and benefit from the big picture. Now, We've seen this from the beginning. One of the literary tactics that Mark uses in his gospel has been to kind of juxtapose contrasting people and events alongside each other in pairs to, to highlight ultimately the fact that Jesus divides all humanity into one of two groups. And this is exactly what he employs in these verses as we're gonna see six different events being described in rapid succession, three really low events which reveal the depravity and the weakness of human beings who do not understand who Jesus is. And then we're gonna see three wonderfully high events which reveal an appreciation for who Jesus is and what he came to do. What has also been so encouraging for me as, as we consider these lows and highs in the life of Jesus, and this is all just in the space of one day, what we've read here, is that Jesus really is our great high priest who is able to identify with us, he's able to sympathize with us in all that we face in life. How much is our life not a constant series of highs and lows, ups and downs, and we often get really despondent in the lows because I think we've been led to believe the lie of the devil that for the Christian, it's all supposed to be smooth sailing. Well, these verses show us that the ebbs and the flows of our lives are no different to our Savior Jesus. And so when we face both the highs and the lows of life in this fallen and broken world, we have Jesus, we have him alongside us every step of the way. He truly does understand and he calls us to share both our highs and our lows, our joys and our burdens with him. So we're gonna start this evening with our first low uh, in verse one and two, and that is the hatred of his enemies. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth, secretly, and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now there's something quite significant in verse one, and, and that is regarding the enemies of Jesus. Now, what I mean by that, the enemies of Jesus are not those who Jesus saw as his enemies, but those who hated Jesus and had set themselves up to be his enemy. What we see now in verse one is that they have joined forces to seek to kill Jesus. In the, the Jewish religious hierarchy of the day, there were two opposing groups. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were constantly jostling for, for power and influence within the Jewish religion. And we know that both groups were threatened by Jesus. Both, uh, Mark has already accounted, sought to oppose Jesus and undermine him in his ministry. But now we see these two rival groups 
joining forces against a common enemy, namely Jesus. And so we see the chief priests representing the Pharisees and the scribes or the experts in the law representing the Sadducees. They join forces to plot the arrest and the murder of Jesus. Just two days before the the greatest feast that is celebrated by the people of Israel in Jerusalem, namely the Passover, we have this coming together of hatred from different religious groups within Judaism plotting together to kill Jesus. This is certainly a massive low for Jesus. Remember what John 1 verse 11 says, he came to that which was his own, but his own people did not receive him. Remember a couple weeks ago, the parable of the wicked tenants that Jesus told just a few days before in Mark chapter 12. There, Jesus spoke about the tenants of the vineyard who had rejected and beat and killed the servants, the prophets uh, of the master. And in the end, they plotted to kill the very son uh, of the master. And what we have now in these verses is an exact fulfillment of that parable. The parable of the wicked tenants, the people of Israel, represented here by their religious leaders, plotting together to kill Jesus. They'd already killed John the Baptist. They had already rejected the words of the prophets in the Old Testament and struck them and killed them. Now the son was in their midst, the only begotten son of the one whom they claimed was their master. They plotted to kill him. These verses are also a fulfillment of what Jesus said the day before. If we read Matthew's account, Matthew 23, verse 37, where Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing So there we have the first low in Jesus' journey to Calvary, the hatred of his enemies. But in the second place, Mark wants to contrast this real low, a real theological low, a real emotional low, as God's own people begin to actively plot Jesus' death. He contrasts that with the wonderful high of verses three to nine, which is the worship of the redeemed. Now this next account, verses three to nine, is the well-known story of Mary. This is Mary, the sister of Martha and her brother Lazarus, who comes to anoint Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive perfume. Most likely we are told that this nard was imported all the way from India at great cost. Now, we aren't told in Mark's account that this was Mary, but John tells us in John chapter 12 uh, that this woman was indeed Mary of Bethany. And this alabaster jar of very costly perfume, valued in the text, uh, equivalent to a whole year's worth of wages. You can work that out, uh, no matter what it is that you earn for her, that was the equivalent, a whole year's worth of wages. She cracked it open, and the contents were poured over Jesus' head. 
Now in John's account, in John chapter 12, he tells us that it was Judas Iscariot who objected at this point. Let me bring that up, John 12 verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, certainly Judas revealed what was going on in his heart in John's account, but in Mark's account, look at verse four and five, because Mark tells us that there's more going on here than just Judas. Mark tells us it was not just Judas who thought this was a waste but at least some of the other disciples felt exactly the same way. Now we know that Mark's gospel was written under the direction of Peter. And so perhaps this is Peter's way of helping us to see, you know what? I too, along with at least some of the other disciples, did not appreciate what Mary was doing for Jesus. And so the text says they scolded her. Not just Judas, they, a group of them, scolded Mary. But what Jesus says in verse six is, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. What a contrast from the attitude of the disciples. What they saw as a waste, Jesus saw as worship. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a massive challenge to my own heart this evening. As I think about my use of my time and my talents and my money, how much of my actions are really driven by an attitude of total devotion to and worship of Jesus? Or if I'm honest, do I not often think that to give more of myself and more of my things to Jesus would be a waste? Well, Jesus says that this act of Mary was a beautiful thing. But how do we know that this was truly an act of worship of a, of a woman who had been redeemed by Jesus? Well, at an earlier time in Jesus' ministry, Luke tells us of an account which occurred, which helps to shed light on what is taking place in these verses. So let me take you to Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. This is earlier in Jesus' ministry. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, the same Mary we're reading about in Mark chapter 14. What did Mary do? She sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to Jesus and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. 
Surely the one thing which is necessary, the, the good portion that Jesus commends here is to believe in and love the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. You are running around in all kinds of ministry and service. That's not bad. But so often it can distract us from the main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To believe and to know him as savior, to love him with all your heart. That says Jesus will not be taken away from Mary. So what we have then in Mark's account is not so much got anything to do with the fine smelling, very expensive perfume. That is a beautiful thing, Jesus said. Rather, it's an expression of true worship, true worship which Mary shows to Jesus. Nothing in all this world is more important to Mary than Jesus. He saved her. He has given her eternal life. There is nothing of herself in this life that she will withhold from Jesus. So what Jesus says next in verse seven is quite amazing. Let me paraphrase. He says, you'll always have the poor with you and you can always do good to them and so you should. But that's not the main thing. My disciples, one thing is necessary. You guys are just like Martha. You are troubled about many earthly things but you do not know and believe and love me as Mary does. She has anointed my body for burial. And whenever the gospel is proclaimed across the world, what Mary has done will be told in memory of her. Let's just think about that for a second. Jesus is linking this act of Mary to the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. How, how does that even work? How is that possible? How is that reasonable? Well, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death and burial for the redemption of sins. And that those who believe in Jesus, having had their sins forgiven, washed away, are redeemed from darkness into light. And those people will truly appreciate Jesus as the treasure of infinite value. Those who believe the gospel will see Jesus as the pearl of great price. And like Mary, they will offer themselves as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable, which Romans 12:1 says is our spiritual worship. All of ours, not just Mary's. So if you claim to have believed in Jesus Christ tonight, if you claim to be a Christian tonight, can I ask you to really think about your gut response to this act of Mary. As I read it, did you perhaps think a year's wages, a year's salary poured out over the head of Jesus? What a waste. Or are you thinking right now, what can I do to worship Jesus like that? So after the low of the religious leaders plotting to murder Jesus, we have this high of Mary's complete sacrificial worship of Jesus. And she does this beautiful thing of anointing him in advance for his burial. 
Well, in the third place, Mark moves on to contrast this high with the next low. The low being the betrayal of a frenemy in verses 10 and 11 and 18 to 21. In these verses, we are now introduced to Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples who is mentioned over 20 times in the gospel and almost exclusively is either referred to as the one who betrayed Jesus or who is described as being in the process of betraying Jesus. The gospels speak mostly negatively of Judas. Judas was, however, as Mark points out, look at verse 10, he was one of the 12. He was one of the chosen disciples of Jesus. He was part of his most intimate circle of friends. Outwardly, Judas was a friend of Jesus, but inwardly, his heart belonged to Satan, and he was an enemy of Jesus. After this incident with Mary, Judas had the depths of his heart exposed. It's God's grace when the depths of our sinfulness are exposed, because then we have an opportunity to see it, to hate it, to confess it, and to be forgiven. But instead of being repulsed by his own sinfulness and crying out to Jesus for forgiveness, he determines to put it all back and to plot with the religious leaders to betray Jesus for money. Mary's perfume, we are told, was worth a year's wages, and Judas considered that a waste. But he goes out and he betrays Jesus to the religious leaders to be killed for a mount equivalent to just three months' worth of wages. Judas's wicked heart was not yet widely exposed at this point because we read a few verses later that he was back again sitting in the friend circle celebrating the Passover meal with Jesus. So now Jesus exposes the reality of his betrayal and really the fullness of the evil of his heart in verse 18. He says, one of you will betray me to the disciples sitting around the table. One of my friends who is reclining with me at this table, who's busy dipping his hand with me into the dish. One of you will betray me. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. John's gospel fills us in with a few more details at this point, telling us that Jesus then identified Judas as the betrayer, and that at that moment Satan entered him, and he immediately went out from them, and it was night, darkness. Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, had found and devoured Judas a friend of Jesus, who had now become his number one enemy. What a low point. The first low, to be hated by your enemies, that's hard enough to deal with, but kind of expected. But to be betrayed by a friend, a person you've loved and entrusted yourself to for three years, invested in, cared for, to have them betray you cuts so very deeply. Once again, Mark rapidly transitions from this deep and hurtful low to another wonderful high. And in the fourth place, we see the high of the fellowship of his friends. Surrounding this tragic low of Judas, we have 11 others. The account of Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. 
and using this occasion to teach them about his death and what it would mean for them as he institutes the Lord's Supper in memorial of his death. I want you to see, and we can't look at the details, Jesus didn't just happen upon this Passover meal with his disciples. No, he initiated it, he planned it. When the disciples said, what do you want us to do? Jesus said, it's all been arranged. Just go into the town, find this man, follow him, do what I say. It's all been determined that I will celebrate this meal with you as my friends. I love Luke's account. Luke chapter 22 verse 15 says, and Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Isn't that a wonderful insight? That Jesus earnestly desired on the eve of his betrayal and crucifixion to do what? To celebrate the Passover with his friends. To enjoy koinonia, fellowship, deep intimate relationship with his disciples in this way of reclining together around the table eating a meal together as he then explains to them what his death would mean for them. So we read these familiar but wonderful words in verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So here Jesus not only explains what his imminent death would mean for them, for his disciples, that he was now inaugurating the new covenant this new covenant promised by God in the Old Testament, the dawning of a, of a new salvation era. But also that his death was not the end. He would rise from the dead and he would eat and drink again with his friends in the new heavens and the new earth when they would celebrate with him in the great marriage feast of the Lamb as we read about in Revelation 19. If you're a Christian tonight, Jesus is looking forward with great anticipation to celebrate this meal that he had with his disciples, with you and with me, around the, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. I hope you are eagerly awaiting uh, that day. By the way, just to clarify my comment in the baptistry this morning, when I, I said it would be wonderful if the Spirit snatched me away, um, I was referring to that day. I was referring to the Lord coming if he could come now. Uh, that is what I long for, uh, that we could be with him in his presence forever. But again, true to Mark's style and pace in his gospel, the, the high of Jesus' fellowship with his friends around the, the Passover meal immediately transitions into the next low in this emotional roller coaster of Jesus on his way to the cross. And so in the fifth place, we see the weakness of these very same friends. As we enter into this next section, verse 27 to 42, um, as Jesus goes across to the Mount of Olives and then goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, I realize that we are approaching holy ground. So we're given here an insight into the very heart of Jesus, the, the conflict 
between his two natures, fully God and yet fully man, as he agonizes in his spirit over that which awaits him at Calvary. Somewhere between leaving the upper room in verse 26 and going into the garden of Gethsemane in verse 32, we have all the teaching, including Jesus' high priestly prayer, recorded for us in John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. So perhaps this evening, just go home and reread this passage, and between those verses, jump across to John 14 and see all that Jesus wanted his disciples to know about what was about to take place. And so we must be careful to, to disconnect Mark's very rapid, uh, sort of brief version of what he's highlighting here from the rest of the Gospels and all that took place during this time. But Mark's purpose in this brief summary is to show us the next low in Jesus' journey to Calvary, which is that the very friends whom Jesus had just spent this wonderful evening of fellowship and teaching with, they too now failed him when he needed them most. Verse 27, Jesus tells the remaining 11 disciples that they would soon fall away from him. And then he quotes the prophet Zechariah. He says, the good shepherd will be struck and the disciples, his sheep, will be scattered. And we see here that when Jesus says that the shepherd will be struck, he means struck to death. Because he goes on in verse 28 to say, after he is risen, you only rise if you were dead. He will go before them as a good shepherd goes before his sheep to Galilee. Now, Peter at this point insists that if all the others fall away, he would not. And so Jesus responds that this very night, before the rooster crows twice, Peter would deny him three times. Look at verse 31. Peter responds emphatically. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And look at the rest of the verse. And all the other disciples said the same. Now, if we didn't know better, this could be considered a high, as all the friends of Jesus swear their allegiance and, and their commitment to him no matter what. It's wonderful. But we know better, don't we? We don't have to read on very far to know that it would soon happen just as Jesus said. Peter would deny Jesus three times, all the disciples would be scattered, and Jesus would be left alone to face the cross. Now, we don't have to wait for next Sunday to see this or the coming weeks. Mark already shows us the, the weakness of the disciples in the next verses as Jesus goes to pray in Gethsemane. He leaves eight of the disciples at the entrance and then he takes his inner circle with him, Peter, James, and John, and he invites them in a very intimate way to enter with him into his sorrow and his suffering and all that was about to take place. Now, of course, Jesus knew that, that none of them could prevent what was coming. None of them could deliver him from the agony of the cross. But what could his friends do for him? They could support him in prayer. They could watch and pray. That's all he asks of them, watch and pray. Yet the narrative quickly tells us that Jesus goes further on his own to pray and three times he returns. and Three times he finds his disciples asleep. Just a short while before, Peter, along with the rest, pledged their undying loyalty and commitment to Jesus 
And yet despite all their zeal, despite all their promises, in their weakness, they could not even watch and pray for one hour. What another blow this must have been to Jesus. Another deep low of disappointment. You sense it in the voice of Jesus. This time not from his enemies, not even from a frenemy, but from those who were truly his friends. They didn't betray him. They didn't turn their back on him. These are men who said that they would stick with him. They would stand alongside him. They would fight for him. And yet when the rubber hits the road and Jesus says, wouldn't you pray with me? They fall asleep and he's left alone. So in the final section, then rapidly contrasts the highs and the lows. Mark does not want us to end by focusing on the weakness of the disciples. And I think he does not want us to lose hope when we consider our own weakness and inability. Please don't think that you would have been any better a disciple than Peter, James, and John, or any of the others that night. For we know that none of us can contribute a single iota to the work of Jesus on our behalf. We are just as weak as they were. And so in the final place, Mark wants us to end on a high, which is the power of his Father. I was gonna call this final point the, the power of prayer. For that really is what we see here. But that might be misunderstood by some if we are not clear that the great power of prayer is only because of who it is that we pray to and who it is that is able to answer prayer and that is God the Father. In verse 32, Jesus enters Gethsemane with a single-minded purpose to pray and we see in verse 35 and 36 that he cries out in prayer to his Father. Look at verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Verse 39, Jesus goes back to pray again for a second time, the same thing. And verse 40 implies that he went back again for a third time to pray again. And initially we might be tempted to think that this prayer of Jesus was a, another low alone in deep agony and sorrow as he cries out to God to remove this cup from him. And yes, while the reality of the physical suffering, the abuse, the spitting, the striking, eventually the crucifixion itself, all the physical suffering of the next day was certainly a, a very real part of Jesus' suffering, it was not that cup which Jesus was asking to be removed. Can I take you back to verse 27, where Jesus quotes Zechariah to his disciples that they would fall away. Look carefully at what Jesus says in verse 27. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who will strike the shepherd? God will. The striking to death of Jesus was not because the Pharisees and the Sadducees had plotted to kill him. It was not because Judas had betrayed him. It was not because Pilate botched the trial. It was not even because the Romans were cruel monsters. No, Jesus says in fulfillment of scripture, God will strike him 
to death. Now this is fully in line with what the prophet Isaiah said. Let me just show you a selection from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord, that's God the Father, has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. He has put him to grief. And so as Jesus was left all alone in the garden of Gethsemane to pray, he was praying to his father who was about to take all of your transgressions, all of my transgressions. If you're a Christian here tonight, he was about to have our sins laid on Jesus. Our iniquities, our grief, our shame. And Jesus would be struck, he would be pierced, he would be crushed, and all of that would be the punishment of God which we deserved, but which Jesus took in our place. This was God's will for Jesus. The great price, as Angus reminded us last weekend at the camp, which God demanded so that we might be saved. So you might be saying, well, Clinton, where is the high to be seen in the power of prayer? Jesus prayed three times for this cup to be removed from him, and three times, effectively, he got the same answer. There is no other way. This is my will. And then again, and then again. So again, where is the power of prayer to be found? Well, it's not to be found in God answering us according to our will. It's found in God giving us the grace to both accept and do his will. Look with me at verse 42. After praying three times for God's will to be done, returning three times to find his earthly friends fast asleep in their weakness, look at what Jesus says. Rise, get up, see, my betrayer is at hand. Let's be going. See, the true power of prayer is not in us receiving what we wanted but in knowing that God our Father is with us in whatever he has ordained to be his will for us. In John's account just before this time of prayer in Gethsemane, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. Well, there you have it. Uh, Mark's summary of a day in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three highs, three lows. Look at those lows. Hatred, betrayal, weakness, disappointment, hurt, apathy, embarrassment. And yet interspersed, there is worship, there is fellowship, and there is power. 
Isn't that the description of the Christian life? Highs and lows, joys and sorrows, weakness and strengths, trials and triumphs. I think this is what Paul had in mind in his second letter to the Christians in Corinth, and we're going to close with this reading from 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, but we have this treasure, this treasure of the gospel, this treasure of a relationship with Jesus Christ in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body, in our body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal, our weak flesh. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow but the things that are unseen are eternal. What an incredible savior we have uh, who renews us day by day in the inner man uh, as we face the highs and the lows along with him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you this evening again for your word. Uh, and in your word, we come and as Jesus instructed us to, to pray to you as our Father. We want to acknowledge you this evening for your gift to us of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That it was your plan with him from before the foundations of the earth that he would be crushed, that he would be struck in our place, that we would not have to face your eternal wrath and punishment for all eternity but in Jesus Christ can be forgiven and can be reconciled to you. Lord, we thank you for this truth in this passage this evening. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this reminder that you are our great high priest who's able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses, in all of our highs and our lows. For you have been tempted and tested and tried in every way just as we are, yet you are perfect. And so we can come to you and to your throne of grace and to find help in our time of need. And so I pray, Lord, whatever season each one of us may be going through at this moment, whether it's a high, may we give you thanks and praise and, and glory for all that you are doing in our lives. And if it's a low, may we cling very closely to you who understands and is with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. And that in the end, you will complete the work that you have begun in us to the glory and honor of your name. We pray these things. Amen.